You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about a very special asset class within the world of private equity real estate, farmland, right? I, I drive by farmland every single day on my daily commute, and it really is an asset that uh, the world's billionaires and most sophisticated investors are investing in heavily. So I think it's something that family offices, the high net worth investors need to be looking into. Joining me today is David Chan, who is Chief Client Officer at Farm Together. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Andy. Uh, great to be here. Do you agree with my lead, David? I mean, I, that's that was a little bit of editorializing, but you know, I've seen it in like the headlines. You know, billionaires buying up farmland. They've been doing it for years. I, I don't know if uh, I would uh, stake my wagon on on everything billionaires do. They can be a, an eclectic <laughs> bunch, but um, I, I would say that I think farmland is a, an excellent asset class for capital preservation. Um, it's an excellent asset class as an inflation hedge. Uh, it's an uncorrelated asset class to many of the mainstream asset classes like public equities and fixed income. Um, so particularly in today's economic environment where uh, I, I would just personally define it as an uncertain one, I think a asset class like farmland with many of these qualities is, is uh, particularly attractive. So let you know you kind of alluded to this capital preservation, and that that's a phrase I've said on this program. I've heard that phrase more in the past twelve months than I had in the previous twelve years. Um, you know, and we also have family offices on the show, and that's a big theme for families. How does farmland perform in a recession? I mean, I don't, I'm not saying we're in a recession right now. It's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde thing, but it seems like a lot of investors are are almost presuming that we are. You know the the bull market notwithstanding, so has farmland held up historically speaking during recession or contraction periods? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question, and I think um, it's funny because I've heard many people say that they're not saying we're in a recession right now, but I'm also not hearing anyone saying we're not not in a recession. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, I think the way I I look at capital preservation, there's lots of different things to factor, of course, um, real returns versus nominal, uh, you know, the basics and whatnot. But um, I think the simplest way, if you want to do a cross asset class comparison, is is looking at drawdowns. Um, it, it's something that applies to every single asset class. Um, and so, you know, when we look at public equities, when we look at fixed income public equities in 2022, we're down. I think S and P 500 was down roughly 17 percent. Um, uh, Fixed income, Barclays bond aggregate, I think was down 14%. Um, so we saw meaningful drawdowns across uh, uh, many of the mainstream asset classes in what was arguably a very tumultuous year, but drawdowns nonetheless. When we look at farmland, our benchmark for farmland is the NACREF farmland index, uh, NFI. The NACREF is a, uh, a real asset uh, data provider that compares institutional uh, returns for various real asset classes. So um, real estate, farmland, timberland would be some of the uh, the different benchmarks that NACREF measures. 
when we look at NFI, the farmland index under NACREP, we have data going all the way back to 1991, quarterly data. Um, so, you know, roughly 32 years or 30, 31, 32 years of, uh, of quarterly data available. Um, do you want to take a guess how many quarters uh, saw drawdown in farmland uh, from 1991 to today? Oh, that's dangerous territory. You better just tell me so I don't embarrass myself, David. Uh, two. Two quarters? Wow. Two quarters. Two quarters. Um, the most recent one being, I, it was Q1, I believe, of 2022. Um, okay. But uh, all in all, two out of 128, 130 quarters uh, were negative, and the, the vast majority were positive. So that's one way that I consider farmland, and, and I think we can stand by a statement like it's, it's a solid asset class for capital preservation. Um, one, because there's two income streams, um, it, it is a real asset, so it has that same uh, mechanical profile as a real estate investment. You have your income um, from either rental income or operating income, and then you have your appreciation. So you have two income streams um, that the investment can produce, and you're in an industry, agriculture, that is so closely tied to uh, to CPI and, and inflation. Uh when you think about what agricultural products are used for, it's not just food or and feed. Um, fiber is such a big part of it. Probably most of the things that are um, sitting around your desk right now have uh, some corn or soy uh, used to produce them. So agricultural products are uh, consumed and utilized by by us as consumers in so many ways beyond just uh, beyond just food and, and feed and fuel. Um, so I think. It is the ultimate inflation hedge because of that, um, and so you have this dual return stream asset class that uh, mirrors inflation because of the the, the nature and virtue of how agricultural products are used, um, and is a an asset class that has really strong fundamentals because of the market that we're in right now. Um, we are a commodity market. Um, we are dictated by supply and demand. On the demand side, in aggregate, we have a growing global population. We have a rising middle class in many parts of the world that are demanding higher caloric diets uh, and more complex diets um, that are putting a bigger demand on more nutritious and, and frankly, more expensive commodities like meat and alternative proteins like tree nuts. Um, couple that with supply, in the U.S. at least, um, farmland is way down in terms of number of acres that are being used to produce agricultural commodities um, since I think 2004 to 2017, about a, a, a 13 year period. This is the, the census that we saw, the latest census from the USDA. We've lost uh, about twice the size of the state of Massachusetts in terms of area of land uh, that was previously used for farmland. So, um, you know, if you're from a Western state, Massachusetts isn't incredibly big, but if you're from New York, like myself, Thinking about losing not one but two Massachusetts worth of farmland is meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, so we have increasing demand, decreasing supply for a asset that is basically ingrained and intertwined in so many different parts of the economy. Um, it makes for a very resilient uh, asset class, and so that's why we see almost every single quarter of the of the Nate Free Farmland Index being a positive one. Uh, despite going through periods of, of tumultuous economic times. That period would have included the dot-com bubble, 9-11, uh, the great financial crisis, um, the uh, 
Russian grain embargo was more of an agricultural issue than a broader market issue, but one that hit our asset class. That was between 2012 and 2014. Um, and then, of course, COVID. So uh, no shortage of, of black swan events. Yeah, it, you know, farmland reminds me of multifamily, perennial favorite sector on the show, obviously a favorite sector for family offices, for high net worth investors. You know, and the saying is everybody needs a roof over their head. And then there's an underlying supply and demand imbalance that, you know, sort of underpins that market with strong fundamentals. If I'm applying that same mindset to farmland, I'm saying, well, everybody needs a, a roof over their head and everybody's got to eat, right? So as, and as, as you pointed out, you know, globally, there's just a demand for more nutritious foods, probably more, you know, calorie dense foods, just uh, essentially we need more food, especially because the world population is still growing. One thing that kind of surprises me though, back back to the point that, you know, there were only two negative quarters of growth, you know, commodities, you know, depending on the commodity, I'm not a commodities expert, but my impression is that they're pretty volatile in terms of pricing, you know, compared to multifamily where, you know, rents, you know, if rent moves 7% in a year, that's a that's that's not a boring year, right? Whether it yeah. <laughs> move up or down seven percent, that's a it, it, an interesting year. Whereas with commodity, if a commodity moves up or down seven percent, it's kind of like you know, I, does anybody even notice? I mean, I I know people notice, but you know, it there's much more fluctuation and price swings in a lot of these crops. So I, I'm just sort of surprised. Like why why doesn't that move the price of of the the farmland asset? Is it because you know, buyers and sellers kind of know that that's a short-term fluctuation and the pricing is more based on long run. Or could you explain that dynamic to me? Absolutely. Um, I, I do think that asset values for, um, for farmland um, tend to be more, uh, I would say, less sensitive to um, short-term commodity prices. So if my prices go up 20%, your land's not worth 20% more that year and mm -hmm. vice versa. So th that's certainly one aspect of it. Um, I think another aspect is the index assumes um, and covers a, a broad range of commodities and geographies. And so um, when we're when we're thinking about farmland and, and maybe the same as if you're thinking real estate investments, if you just pick one particular market or one segment, you know, if you're if you're only judging real estate performance by uh, performance of commercial real estate in San Francisco, um, that's not going to be a pretty number or you know, at least historically short term. Um, right. if, you, if you open that up to other markets, you open that up to potentially multifamily or other segments as well. Um, you know, obviously the, the, uh, the values will be different. And so for us, um, I think a, a big part of it is the resilience and uh, I'd say lagging nature of asset valuations. They're, they're not uh, extremely sensitive or responsive to commodity prices because um, frankly, land does not change hands very often. It, it certainly does not change hands every single year. Um, so, you know, there, there's this implicit understanding that most landowners are going to be owning farmland for at least a couple of years, if not a couple of decades. Um, so that that's one, I, I think, um, underpinning tenant behind all of this. Um, but the other being that we're talking multiple geographies, multiple commodities, if one, particular commodity is down in your portfolio, another could be up. Um, and that's the benefit of diversification, of course. So, um, you know, that that 
holds true whether you're investing in farmland or public equities or whatever it may be. So um, I think that's probably why the drawdown uh, figure is is as as small as it is. Um, you know, while we do see commodity price fluctuation, um, generally speaking, asset valuation has has been uh, to the northeast, meaning you know up and to the right, but at a very gradual pace. Um, the other thing I'd mention there is also deal structure is is one way that investors can consider, um, you know, based on their risk appetite and what their hurdle rate is, um, what type of exposure they're looking for in their farmland investments. So we have deals that are uh, leases where our cash yield is derived from either entirely rental income or mainly rental income. So we don't have much market risk. Um, obviously, we have counterparty risk with whoever we're leasing to. Um, but we don't have market risk in that. If commodity prices and yields are up, we get that upside. If they're down, we eat that downside. On the flip side, we have other structures, which are called direct operating structures, where our cash yield is derived from operating income. And so here we're paying a third-party operating partner to provide the farmland management services. And um, that, that encompasses the labor, uh, expertise, technology, equipment needed to actually farm our properties. Um, so we pay a, a flat service fee um, for that um, for that work, and in exchange, we are owners of the income stream of the actual operating income from the property. So in that case, if yields and commodity prices are up, we enjoy all that upside. If they're down, we eat that downside. Um, that's where you would certainly see the most volatility in, in at least year-to-year -year returns, because obviously you're dealing with a little bit more choppiness in commodity prices and commodity yields. We didn't even touch yield yet, but weather events, um, disease, pests um, can either you know boost yields or depress yields. So that's another uh, factor. Um, but the way we structure deals can be altered, you know, based on investor preferences. So for an investor who's looking for a higher yield, we have that option to to be able to capture all that upside. For investors who would um, rather uh, you know limit limit their upside. At, but you know, limit their upside in order to cap their downside. At least on an income sta uh, standpoint, they can lease the property out. Um, you know, uh, depend on that base rent um, for the income and still enjoy the appreciation of the underlying asset. Understood. Well, you know, all this all this talk about yield, and this is this is probably going to be a hard question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I know income investing is so so popular. You know, we've seen. Private credit has come into the limelight. It seems to be getting increasing interest from family offices, from high net worth investors. You, you know, just those higher yields. Uh, I always like to say, income never goes out of style. Income investing never really goes out of style. So, understanding that there's going to be, you know, wild fluctuations uh, depending on the crop and yield and all that is. Is the income stream, you know, is it, <laughs> is there a range you could give, you know, as like a potential LP, like what, what sort of range of income streams or yield would, would you possibly be looking at if you're investing in farmland? And is it, you know, is the return more weighted towards the capital appreciation, but it's like, you know, you still enjoy some yield or is it vice versa? It's, it's mainly an income investment. So it is a tough question to answer because there's so many different types of deals and particularly that latter question on whether or not it's the, the overall performance of the investment is more tied to the capital appreciation versus the income. That's going to depend on whether or not we're looking at a development property where 
I would say the most most of the value in that property is in fact in the capital appreciation. We're deferring income for the first three to possibly five years mm. um, because we're developing a property, meaning we're uh, recycling old trees, planting new trees, or planting new vines, and we are dealing with biology. Um, these are biological assets, so we can't, as much as we'd like to, we can't speed up the growth rate of those trees or vines. We have to wait three, four, five years. So, for so David, is that like, is that like a comparable to like value add, or is that that almost sounds like new construction? You know, like like in in yeah, certainly value add uh, would be would be how we think about it. Um, okay, uh, and so um, you know the yields there the. Returns are expected to be much higher. Mature cash yields, um, once a property is developed, we typically right now are, are looking at high single digits. Um, so 8%, oh, wow. 9% cash yields net. Um, and IRRs for those types of properties would be typically at least uh, 11%, uh, could reach as high as 15% net IRR. Um, okay. So those would be the highest risk, highest yield. Um, other structures where maybe we're buying a turnkey property, if we're buying a turnkey property, we're obviously paying more today than we would for, uh, you know, for a property where it's just barely in value. Here we have barely in value plus the present value of the trees on the property, and that present value is going to be meaningful if those trees are producing a healthy income. So um, the capital appreciation in that instance would not be as big of a role or play as big of a role in the overall underwriting and performance of the investment. The income would be uh, playing a more meaningful role, and for those types of properties, we're typically looking at, uh, I would say, expected cash yields of around six percent net, uh, maybe seven percent net. Um, we also have, again, the lease structures where we could lease to a tenant if we don't want to deal with the operating risk. Um, and on leases, we're seeing cap rates. Um, I would say range from four and a half to probably six and a half percent. In, in today's market. Um, so, you know, it is it is variable, depends on uh, investor preferences, risk, suitability, goals. Um, but I think that's also the beauty of, of our space. We are able to tailor and customize all these different um, uh, return profiles for very different investors. Um, someone who is investing on behalf of maybe their children who have a, you know, uh, maybe a 50-year old period in mind is going to be looking for different um, investment uh, criteria and, and uh, have different objectives than uh, maybe a, an upcoming retiree where the income may be a more important factor. Absolutely. Now, I, I know Farm Together, you know, you're, you're a big name in this the space of, you know, retail access, you know, family office access to farmland, um, you know, as, as limited partners. But I actually want to, if we could, not only go back to the beginning of farm together but even prior to that you know historically how have investors accessed this asset class i mean i i remember reading uh meb faber's book about you know the yale endowment fund and the ivy portfolio and all that and that was kind of my impression you know back to back to the lead of this episode even you know big big money you know institutional investors able to buy this stuff up at scale and then on the other end of the spectrum you have mom and pops right with the 40 acre, 80 acre, 120 acre, whatever family farm. It, it, has that really changed, you know, or, or, or take us back, I guess, before farm together, what was the lay of the landscape from the perspective of an LP or a family office? Sure. Um, 
it's interesting in some ways much has changed and others not not much has changed so i would say you know what what has not changed is the makeup and composition of the u.s farmland market and i think we can start there so I think there is a notion, um, I, I've seen so many different articles talking about industrialized farming in the United States and, um, you know, uh, big scale farms and, and all that. Um, and, and I understand the vantage point, but if you really want to see industrial farming, go down to Brazil. Um, their farms have runways on the farms where you can uh, land planes to, to deliver uh, and receive product. That would be an industrial farm. The United States does not have many industrial farms. We have smaller farms. Um, and it's because of our history. If you look at U.S. history um, and the legacy of certain pieces of, of, of law, like the Homestead Act, we deliberately zoned out uh, and, uh, and cut out pieces of land to be small homesteads, economic producing homesteads that could be farmed for families. Um, and obviously, it... U.S. history is much more complicated than that, but that is the DNA, that is the premise of lot sizes and acre parcels and basically what we're working with today when we look at supply. We don't have many farms that are on the market or come up for sale that are $100 million farms or $75 million farms. You know, if, if we're looking at real estate and luxury real estate, no one blinks at a, a $75 million property. There's, there's plenty of them. Um, it's not a unicorn. It's it's nothing special. In in the U.S., a seventy-five million dollar farm coming up to market is very special. There there are not many of them. Um, so that being said, when you look at capital allocators and many of these pensions and endowments that have mandates to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars into a strategy, how do you do that efficiently if there are only so many $75 million properties available. It's tough and it's competitive. Um, and that's, you know, there, there is a, a cadre of, uh, of um, allocators and large pensions and endowments who uh, compete in the space and they all compete or they tend to compete on those same larger properties. Um, and it, it is competitive because everyone's trying to move big amounts of capital in a space where the supply doesn't really support that thesis. Mm -hmm. um, on the flip side, there are lots of individuals, um, uh, be it neighbors or other, uh, I consider neighbors to be strategics, who want to maybe expand their existing footprint, their, their neighbor is selling their farm, it's adjacent, it helps economies of scale. Of course, they're going to be interested in, in adding on that parcel, um, but they're constrained by capital. Um, so, you know, they may be looking at smaller lot sizes and additions of maybe up to a million or so, but once you start to get north of that, it becomes less and less, um, likely for an individual to take down a, a parcel on their own. Um, and it leaves us with this valley in supply of farms that are, you know, around $2 million to up to say $20 million in value that the existing pensions and endowments who are in the space, who have big mandates to move hundreds of millions of dollars doesn't really move the needle for them. Um, some of them actually, many of them have stated investment minimums where they can't consider a property that's smaller than say $20 million in value. Um, so even if it's a, a an A plus diamond property has amazing fundamentals, if it's $17 million, I'm sorry, we can't look at mm -hmm. it. So 
that's the upper end of the valley, the lower end of the valley, individuals who can't take down a $2 million deal because of, of capital limitations. Um, that's where Farm Together is active. And what we're seeing is that our focus on making farmland more accessible uh, to retail investors, to family offices, to registered investment advisors, to smaller plan sponsors, smaller and medium-sized endowments. Um, this is a, a, a deal size range that is the sweet spot for many of those different investor groups. Um, and there is lots of supply available and more supply coming to market over the next two decades as we see a generational transfer of ownership, which is already underway, um, uh, materialize. So um, I think, you know, back to your question on what has changed, what hasn't, the supply fundamentals in the sense of our composition have not changed. We, we still have relatively small size farms in the United States. Um, what is changing is that we are we have new uh, new competitors in the market who are able to construct and build products that are able to consider properties that are in that medium deal range value that before were often forgotten and would either be sliced into lots of different smaller properties or aggregated into one bigger property. Now there's a focus on that valley. And it's there's, a, there's a middle market now. I mean, it's, it's basically what I'm hearing is exactly right. mom and pop. And then there is institutional when, when farm together is able to basically bundle together 20 or 50 or a hundred LPs, then suddenly purchasing a $10 million, $16 million, whatever asset is very doable. I mean, it frankly, even attractive, right? Because now if I'm a family, smaller family office or, a very high net worth investor, you know, I can now directly be an LP and particular asset, hopefully multiple assets to get some diversification. And it's in that sweet spot. I mean, my, my experience is, you know, in that institutional level, as you pointed out, you might have Yale, Harvard and Bill Gates all bidding against each other, you know, in the multifamily world. And sometimes that means the cap rates get really, really compressed yep. at, at the very high levels and so sometimes there's even more, uh, I would say, value or more attractive multiples in the middle market in some of these sectors. Is that the case in farmland? Or is there a little, does your dollar stretch a little further buying the $15 million asset versus the $75 million asset? It depends. We we think so, but it depends how you define dollar and what, you know, obviously you have economies of scale on the, on the larger properties, but what sure. you what you may lose there but what you gain, there's still certainly economies of scale on a $15 million farm, uh, massive economies of scale. But the bigger advantage is in the acquisition itself. Um, I, you know, I subscribe to the, the real estate school of thought that the most important part of the equation is the purchase price. Um, so I, I am a believer of that. And um, we do not, we have not found ourselves yet in a situation where we were, uh, actively competing in, in a bidding war over a single property. Um, we are often directly dealing with a seller um, and negotiating with a seller and um, you know not facing that auction environment that can lead to uh, compressed uh, compressed cash yields um, and, and compressed cap rates. So um, we think that that is really critical. Um, and you know I, I think I think institutional investors I are almost forced um, to sometimes overpay because of the nature and the scarcity 
of mm-hmm. properties that meet that size. Um, and, and that right. is a limitation that they have to deal with. And it hurts on the capital appreciation side, it hurts quite a bit. Um, so I think, you know, what, what you may lose in terms of um, some unit economics and, and scale of efficiency on a $15 million property versus say 75 million, you gain a lot back in the appreciation and, and um, uh, potential appreciation and the fact that you're likely not in a bidding scenario um, for the acquisition of the property. I, I don't want to get in a bidding war with Bill Gates or, or the Yale Endowment Fund. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Well, I want to talk about your platform specifically, you know, kind of the nuts and bolts. So I'm an accredited investor. Let's say, you know, uh, maybe I sold my, my business or whatever, had a liquidity event. I want to allocate, you know, uh, a million bucks to alt. 100k at a time to different different subs. So I may have a hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand that I want to put into farmland. I go to farm together. Is it farmtogether.com? Um, what are my options? How do I sign up? How do I review deals? Is there a fund? Are there individual offerings? Walk me through what I'll what I'll see as a you know prospective investor. All the above. So we do have uh individual offerings. Um they are all 506C regulation D exempt uh, security offerings. So they're crowdfunded deals. We uh, build a syndicate of investors, um, all of whom need to meet accreditation standards um, to invest in, in those single asset deals. And so if you, I'd say that's a good fit for anyone who um, wants to take the time to uh, do diligence on each acquisition and basically have uh, you know the ability to select which properties, geographies, commodities, return risk profiles they want to be a part of. Um, the minimum uh, dollar amount for those offerings is a $15,000 investment, uh, one five. So if you were looking to invest, let's make it easy and say $150,000, you would be able to diversify that across 10 different single assets potentially. Well, that, yeah, David, that's really, I mean, in my experience, most offerings that are accredited investor only have that $100,000 or $50,000 investment minimum. So 15, that actually is a big differentiator because now if I have $100,000, I could actually potentially get a very diversified portfolio while still being able to select individual deals. So that to, to me, that's, so is, are there multiple deals open at a time or do they kind of open and close one at a time? There can be uh, multiple open at, at a time. Uh, we just had two simultaneously open. We've since um, filled the syndicate and closed one of the two. We currently um, have one, uh, uh, one offering open, which is a citrus orchard in California. Um, we expect that to be closing shortly. I think we've raised 95% of the equity for that deal. Um, and our next deal will likely be a pecan orchard in Oklahoma, um, just to give you a sense of the diversity here. So we're yeah. going from California citrus to Oklahoma pecan. So we try to, to target different geographies, different commodities, again, for investors who are taking advantage of our lower minimum and creating a, a diversified um, basket or diversified portfolio of different farmland investments. Um, now, some investors, uh, you know, that that's ideal for them and they love having that ability and, and um, uh I'd say independence of, of being able to select which properties they invest in. Other investors don't want to take the time to figure out which properties they want to invest in. They, you know, I hear things often like, you know, I'm I'm paying you as the manager to find the farmland properties. I don't want to have to do that work. I don't know why I should be investing in almonds versus pistachios or or whatnot. So I'm trusting you with that job, and and I want you to do that for me. 
Um, and I understand that um, that perspective as well. So for investors who want a diversified option, um, that's uh, basically auto diversified. They don't have to do that work on their own. We also have an open-ended fund. Um, so that's the Farm Together Sustainability, um, or, I'm sorry, the Farm Together Sustainable Farmland Fund. Um, it's a, a product that's uh, open-ended. It's focused on sustainable farmland in the United States. Being that it's open-ended, we can accept new capital on a quarterly basis. So there's no deadline or hard close on when we are raising capital. Um, if an investor decides that they, you know, they expect to be um, selling uh, their business in Q3, and so they expect to have a lot of cash to deploy in Q4, um, you know, they they would have the option of waiting until Q4 to invest in our fund. Um, so that's the beauty of the open-ended nature of it. Um, and that fund currently has holdings in Northern California, Southern California, and Colorado. Um, we'll be making a fourth acquisition in Q3 of this year in Oklahoma. Um, and we expect to be making a fifth acquisition before year end, which would likely be in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and we're invested in citrus, pistachios, uh, corn, soybeans, soon we'll have pecans, and then um, likely hazelnuts or apples or pears in the Pacific Northwest. So already a pretty diversified basket of, of both commodities and geographies. Um, we target a 4 to 6% net cash yield on the fund um, and an 8 to 10% net IRR. Um, and it is a it is a fund. So whereas those single asset deals are structured as limited liability companies and investors have a fractional interest of ownership in the LLC, the fund is a GPLP structure. Um, so investors would be admitted uh, as limited partners to the fund. Um, and we also have other options as well. If investors want uh, to, to either uh, build their own private syndicate of investment partners that they like to work with to own an asset on their own, or if they want to own an asset entirely on their own, we have a product called Bespoke, um, which are effectively separately managed accounts where we'll um, source and underwrite and manage a farmland investment property on behalf of either one or a small group of investors. Um, and then the final product I'll mention, which is one that I'm very excited about because I think uh, I think there's so much um, uh, appetite for other 1031 um, uh, alternatives in the real estate world, uh, would be our tenancies in common or tick deals. Um, and our tick deals are 1031 exchange uh, eligible. Um, so investors who do have 1031 exchange proceeds would be able to uh, exchange into one of these deals as a replacement property for their relinquished property and enjoy those um, uh, potential tax uh, savings. Um, and uh, and that, the minimum for those other products that I mentioned, our fund minimum is $100,000. Bespoke is the highest minimum, of course, because you're outright buying a property. So that's typically um, around a $3 million minimum. Um, and then the tenancy and common or tick deal minimum is uh, generally around uh, $500,000. Understood. Yeah, that's a lot of different options. And, it, you know, I, I think increasingly every family office is different. Every high net worth investor is different. Even every advisor is different. You know, they're looking for different things. So I respect the diversity of product offering. And David, we're almost out of time, but I had one more question. You know, you mentioned the, the tick, uh, the 1031 exchange eligible product but to zoom out you know we we on this show we talk a lot about multifamily and you know 1031s DSTs all these all these different tax advantage forms of investing you know in real estate with, with like multifamily even if you're not uh, doing a 1031 there are other tax advantages right pass through depreciation 
you know, all kinds of different things in the tax code. Are there intrinsic advantages like that in some of these farmland offerings where it's it's a tax advantaged investment, even even putting aside the 1031, which I know that in and of itself is very attractive, but are there other tax benefits to investing in farmland? Yeah, so I um I, I think I'd be uh I'd be as slapped on the wrist if I didn't say the the company line, which is we can't give tax advice. But that being said, there are certainly potential tax benefits uh inherent to farmland investments that that real estate investors probably would would be familiar with um because they apply to farmland as they apply to real estate. And I would say probably the most common um that I, I think is used in real estate that we see in farmland as well would be the concept of bonus depreciation um, and being able to depreciate uh, 100% of all capitalized expenses in the year in which they're incurred at the federal level. Um, state is different, but at, at least at the federal level, you can um, you can record 100% um, in the year in which those expenses are incurred under bonus depreciation rules. Um, so we do, uh, we do utilize that in our deals um, uh, often as well. And any depreciation benefits um, do flow through and pass through to the investor under Schedule K-1. Um, so that would be reflected as a effectively a net operating loss. And then that investor may be able to either use that net operating loss to either offset current or future income in that investment, or if they have other tax liabilities elsewhere in their portfolio, they may be able to use that to offset those liabilities. Understood. Yeah. And, and you know, again, the ability to 1031, that's we have so many listeners and viewers of the show who are do 1030, you know, they all their real estate transactions are essentially 1031. So I think that's very attractive when platforms allow you to 1031 into the platform because it really it opens it opens you up to so much more capital, right? Because there's I think and I think to the 1031 investor, we're we're I hope a a, a breath of fresh air. We're we're a much differentiated offering. Um, you know, when I when I am considering 1031s or, or helping friends look at 1031s, I, you know, I think they all look very similar to one another. The options, um, you know, the risk profiles, the returns, it's all, you know, uh, an apartment building in, in one suburb. It certainly has its own unique characteristics, but it's not that different than an apartment building in another suburb. For um, better or worse, right? I mean, for better, for better or worse. Yeah. Farmland is obviously different. Um, so we are a very different uh offering a very different um, asset class within real estate. And uh, and it's all considered like kind. So if your relinquished property is a, a gasoline station in Plano, Texas, you would still be able to, to likely exchange into a wine grape vineyard in Oregon. Uh, that's considered a real asset to a real asset. So it's like kind. Um, so I think offering that uh, differentiation is is something that I'm excited about, and and something that you know the tick product for us is is uh, not new. We've we've now been I think offering ticks for about eight, two years, but newer. And I think um, you know especially in today's real estate market where there is a lot of activity and we are seeing 1031 volume uh, increase, um, having alternatives outside of traditional commercial or multifamily is uh, is certainly a positive. Hundred percent. I mean, that's one of the biggest, uh, you know, reasons that alts are so popular, is their ability to diversify a portfolio. So even within that alternatives allocation, that uh, power to diversify, very, very popular, very important. And I think, you know, when we talk about alternative investments on this show, uh, we cover a lot of different things. We cover private credit, private equity, but real estate is the eight hundred pound gorilla, right? So. 
it's cool. It's fun for me to dive into some of these little sectors that I'm not as familiar with, that I know some of our audience probably is not as familiar with. And that being said, David, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about Farm Together and all of your offerings? Our website's definitely the best place to, to start, farmtogether.com. Um, and then additionally, I would just uh, offer if anyone has specific questions, either on Farmland as an asset class or Farm Together, um, please feel welcome to reach out to me as well. My email is david at farmtogether.com. Awesome. David, thanks again for joining the show today. Thank you, Andy. It was great to be here. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.